desert storm, by blue sunshine, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of George Lucas. Chapter One The land speeder's engine sputters, shrieks, and then dies with a jolt, slamming Ben into the drive shaft before it lists and finally stops. The sand the wind kicks up to scrape against the battered metal sounds like laughter. Ben, who was once Obi-Wan, who was once more than a half-drunk man living so far on the scattered edges of civilization that the locals considered him either mad or a wizard, rumors casting doubt on his reality. As they debate whether he is a survivor or something long dead, wandering the desert like so many other ghosts. Ben is maybe more than half drunk at the moment as he forces himself from the speeder, swaying and cursing in thirteen different languages as his fingers tear at the latches for the engines. Sand strafes at his face and his hands and he pulls his scarf up to cover his mouth and nose. A sandstorm is rolling up on him. And had the speeder been functional, he would have been back at his hovel well before it reached him but he's been gradually losing speed his entire trip back from Moss Isley, and the edges of it are threatening him now. He gets the engine open and immediately pries at the air filter, which is no doubt choked with dust. Something with bulbous, milk-blue eyes and a very sharp beak snaps at his hand when he gets the air filter open, and Ben yelps in startlement. The little vermin scurries out, wads of fiber packed in its mouth, and half a dozen more follow, each no larger than his thumb. No, Ben says shortly. No, no. He staggers to his rear storage compartment and rips it open, and a dozen more scatter out, shrieking, leaping off. Ben smacks two from his clothes and then digs into the compartment with roiling nausea. His spare filters are utterly ruined, the fiber lines stripped from the frames by the little vermin. Ben stares at his misery for a long minute, wind whipping at his robes, and then gives in to a fit of pique which he will dearly regret later. He yells, loud, angry, and wordless, and slams a fist against the machine. The force roils around him in his frustration, and the metal shrieks and shears as it is rent unnaturally. And then the speeder snaps, sections flying in different directions, and crashing with satisfying force. Ben is left panting, shaking from head to toe. He turns and wretches, nausea finally overcoming him, staggers away from the mess wiping at his face with his scarf, and then sinks into the sand, utterly spent. In the distance, the sandstorm looks like a solid wall, like a clean line bearing down, but up close, once it reaches you, it doesn't come for you all at once. It starts as a dust, fine and light and almost imperceptible carried on a gusting breeze that would feel like relief on any other day. The dust grows thicker until it coats everything, until it is a taste and haze, and then it clears some, like a reprieve. 
the wind hits stronger, and then the sand comes, starting as a whistling hiss and growing into a roaring scream. And then you are in it, and it is fury and chaos with no way out, snarling and crackling with power. Ben crawls on hands and knees towards the broken pieces of his speeder. And there was a tarp in the main compartment for just this purpose, to cover himself with if he ever gets caught in the storm. There are three, actually, and each one packed in by someone other than Ben. The slave who worked at the junk shop where Ben acquired the thing had packed the first one when his master wasn't looking, eyeing Ben warily when he assured the red-skinned boy that it wasn't necessary. The slave had done it anyway, and Ben hadn't pressed the issue. The second had been forced on him by Baru, when she'd seen how small and tattered the first one was. She'd asked him if he was that much of a fool, or if he had a death wish. He hadn't answered her. The third had been strapped to his rear compartment by old Nanjira, who sold desert fruits at market and always had a canteen of water to share among the slave children. One for you, and one for those in need, she'd told Ben, after giving him his usual order of Japur butter, which was a gritty kind of paste made from the soft insides of Japur pods, and was a rather necessary remedy for the painful sunburn his fair skin acquired all too easily. Jira tells him that his skin will eventually harden to the sun, but for now, he needs the ointment. Ben digs out a small trench in the sand next to the upturned side of his speeder and crawls into it, fastening the tarp and pulling it down over his body, creating a small pocket of protection. He hisses when the hot metal sears his skin, shifts uncomfortably, and listens to the storm as it screams over him. Ben tends to watch over the Larses from afar passing along the ridge east of their farmstead on his rare trips into town, and otherwise simply reaching out to feel them through the force while he meditated outside his hovel at night. When he did visit, normally because Baru saw him lurking and flagged him down, he didn't know what to say. By and large, because he didn't know who to be. But Baru never minded, drawing him into the cool shade of her kitchen and sitting him down at the table. She let him sit in silence, offered him a cup of tea, and she filled the quiet for him, gently rocking Luke in her arms. Owen would sometimes pass through and seemed far more bothered by Ben's unnerving silence and by the ragged desolation ever present in his eyes. It was Baru Whiteson, wife of Lars, who told him the stories all the desert children knew. Stories Anakin must once have known. She told him of Aramu, the All-Mother, who watched over her children from her seat in the moon. She told him of Ekreth, the trickster, who was not the villain but the savior, the guardian of slaves and the hidden folk. She told him of Leia, the great crate dragon, whom all the shackled people prayed to, for Leia was unfettered, was she who broke her own chains and represented strength and freedom to her people. Baru didn't ask why he crumpled at the story, why he curled in on himself and buried his face in his hands but did not weep. 
And she told him of Luca, the Fury, who was the sandstorm, both cleansing and damning. Luca, the slaves believed, was justice. Was he who remade the world and remade the soul? The storm screams at him, and Obi-Wan Kenobi screams back. When the storm passes, Ben feels oddly settled. His entire body aches deeply, but screaming out his rage and grief and loneliness and guilt had eased a great deal of darkness from his soul. The occasional colossal loss of control was apparently cathartic. Ben digs himself out of the weight of sand, now burying him, his speeder, and everything else he might recognize. The pale dawn of first sunrise is just coming up, turning the world violent and blue and pale yellow, and Ben judges that he is precisely in the middle of nowhere, but probably still closer to Mos Eisley than to his hovel, and so he would be better served by walking back south. He scavenges what he can from what he can find. A pack for one. Two of his canteens, one nearly empty, his jar of chipper butter, a block of pressed tea, which had been his purpose for venturing back into civilization, along with the bottles of Corellian brandy which he cannot find. Half a dozen compressed ration packs, which was only a third of what he had purchased from town, and the new circuits he had picked up for one of his malfunctioning evaporators. Ben rolled and tied one of the tarps up to the pack, shouldered it, and sighed, trudging through the dust back towards town. With luck, some enterprising Jawas might find the wreck of his speeder, put it back together, and sell it back to him the next time they brought their caravan through. Obi-Wan has been on Tatooine for about four years in near-complete solitude. The long walk through the sand and scrub no longer bother him, as he spends most evenings and most mornings wandering aimlessly out on the edge of the Junlin wastes. It had taken him less than a month to procure a staff to carry on these walks, as it became vitally necessary to fend off the odd attack of a Tuscan. They've learned he's a formidable opponent, and he's begun to suspect that challenging him has become a game for the younger warriors among the nearest tribe. It's not a fighting style he's used to, but he's learning and it keeps him active. It helps him sleep sometimes. Most nights, however, once he's exhausted himself walking, he spends on a rock shelf above his hovel, looking out over the dust sea and the most stars he's ever seen while still on planet, letting himself drift in the force. He has visions of the ongoing misery in the galaxy of the dark dread that is hunting the last of his people and slaughtering them. He hallucinates some nights, swearing he can hear the dead, catching glimpses of ghosts, losing his sense of time and place, until he is violently sucked back into his own body, gasping in pain with his head reeling, which is when he climbs down from the rock face and starts walking again, with nowhere to go. Ben has cast his senses out, and so he can feel Mos Eisley long before he arrives, can sense the heat-baked stone, the deep wells, the people, 
individual life forms, each bright and noisy and far easier to distinguish than they have ever been. Ben is far more in tune with the Force these days. For all that he has never been powerful in it the way the great masters were, the way Anakin was. During the war, it had felt almost impossible to reach. But Tatooine and a great deal of brooding had taught him not to reach out for it, as the Temple had shown them, but to reach in. His connection to the Force existed within him, and what he called for beyond his own skin was not separate from that, but one and the same. Which was an epiphany reached when he was utterly drunk and delirious from lack of sleep. Hallucinating an out-of-body experience was not a method he recommended for helping teach Padawans to deepen their understanding of the Force. Ben finally reaches the outskirts and all but collapses in a spot of shade, sweat drenching his undershirt. Second sunrise had come up and midday had soon followed when the air shimmered with heat and most beings took shelter. Even slaves were rarely forced out at this time when it was all too easy to fall prey to heat exhaustion, all too easy to die of it. His head was pounding, which was probably more his hangover than anything else, and his senses were all oddly alert, his skin practically buzzing. The energy encouraged him to get back up, for all his mind and muscles protested. There seemed to be decidedly more people in Mos Eisley today than there were yesterday. Cantinas and markets were crowded, and Ben couldn't quite fathom the sudden influx of slaves. The Empire all but condoned the practice, but the blockade against the huts had diminished their presence on Tatooine greatly. Perhaps the blockade had been dissolved. Ben deliberately kept himself apprised only by rumor, because if he was aware of it, if he knew too much, he wouldn't be able to not go back out of the galaxy, to not act. And that was no longer his place. His purpose now was to watch over Luke. Ben slips himself into one of the crowded establishments, earning a few knowing looks for the sheer amount of dust and sand caked on his person, quickly acquiring a jug of water and something to eat with the few whoopupi remaining in his pockets. The bartender ribs him a bit about getting caught in the storm, but Ben just shrugs and lets the conversations around him wash over him. He grows steadily more puzzled. Spice traders are talking fees in one corner. As though the blockade hasn't put the prices up nearly double what they're estimating. A few gamblers are grumbling about last week's races, and then there is a name he hears once and considers a mistake, and then again, and again. Gardoa the Hut, they're saying is paying a visit to Mos Eisley. Except, Gardoa the Hut is dead. Ben knows because Anakin had commented on it when her name came up on one report of many, while they were investigating the rise of the new criminal empire which had been pulled together by Maul and Savage. Ben grips the edge of the table and breathes deeply, trying to reassure himself that he is awake and that he is not hallucinating. It all certainly feels real enough, for all that it makes no sense whatsoever. Ben finishes his meal, such as it was, and slips back out of the cantina, listening to the force prod him this way, that way. 
he finds himself on the edge of Moss Eisley's shopping district, where a massive ship has settled down, and a small settlement of elaborate portable structures have sprung up around it. Slaves with Gardella's emblem dart around, serving gamblers and bounty hunters and traders alike. There are fights being bet on off to his left. Exotic animals snarl and spit at him from two small cages. And Ben is pulled through the throng until he all but knocks over a poor slave carrying some odd sprayer contraption that smells like swamp water. Forgive me, sir, she cries, dropping to her knees. I must attend my mistress. Her hair is brown and tightly braided. Her limbs and face too thin with hunger and work, but not weakness. Her skin is strafed like his is, as if she had been standing in the sandstorm. Scratches and welts forming scabs that would become fine scars. He had had protection, and so his scratches would heal, but hers were far worse, suggesting she had stood far longer and far too vulnerably in the gale. It's a punishment some masters use, he knows. Ben is still trying to figure out why he can feel the force pulling him towards her, why he can barely even sense her even though he's looking right at her, when a small, bright star crashes through his vision. And a little boy clings to his mother, his brightness dimming to little more than a blip under her subdued presence. Under her shielding, he realizes. Dumbfounded at the sheer skill of it. Um, the boy says, hugging her arm and looking up at Ben with bright blue eyes, a challenge on his face as the toddler made sure Ben understood that this was his mother. With one swift motion, she sweeps the boy into the protective curl of her body, all without looking, without lifting her head, and pleads again, I must attend my mistress. Ben chokes a hard half-sob tearing hysterically out of his chest, and then she does look up, startled. Is his name... Uh... Ben chokes on it again. Anakin, he asks. Voice thin and thready. Her brown eyes go hard and fierce, and then flat. Her entire expression goes flat and still, inscrutable. Yes, sir, she replies, voice meek but just as flat as her expression. Ben's heart spasms in his chest, and he absently presses a hand to it, wondering if thirty-six is too young to have a heart attack, or if stress was simply enough, or if he had truly lost his mind or maybe died sometime last night during the sandstorm. Oh, Ben says simply. The little boy watches him warily, still stubbornly clinging to his mother. But his eyes watch Ben's hands too, and he knows all too well why. I see. You should take me to your mistress. She scurries to her feet, fear flashing across her face, but nods meekly picks up the sprayer, and leads the way.